Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we repurpose your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this Blast from the Past edition, from 2006, Jackie Pfeffer checks out robot lovers with an engineer and a psychologist. But first, here's the news from Jackie Pfeffer on testosterone bargaining from 2006 and Jackie Hayes on tobacco and misdirection from 2008 with a few words from Tilly Boleyn, Adam Richardson, and me. Thanks, Ian. One of the most interesting stories to come up this week was about genetically modified plants in South Africa. Now, this isn't like the canola thing in New South Wales and Victoria where they're planting crops or anything. In this case, what scientists have done is actually make these genetically modified tobacco plants turn red in the presence of landmines. So there's actually a use for tobacco other than smoking. <laughs> well, as long as you genetically modify it, I guess. Uh, so basically what is happening is there's this TNT, trinitrotoluene, that uh, is common in a lot of landmines. And as it breaks down, what they've made the plant do is turn red. So usually in the presence of this chemical, the flowers will turn red, not the actual plant. But what they've done is they've modified it so that the entire plant will turn red and then people will know that there's landmines around and avoid that area. So they'll know there's a decomposing landmine. How long does the landmine have to be there before the plant turns red? Ooh, I don't know. Good question. Because if they just plant the tobacco on top of the landmines, they'll blow up. So the tobacco has to already be there, I would think, unless they seed it from the air or something yeah. like that. So I maybe mean, you can seed it from the air and then you have to wait for it to grow up and hopefully in that time it'll there'll be enough chemicals from a decomposing landmine to turn it red. There probably doesn't have to be a very high concentration of the chemicals and that's probably why they made it so that the entire plant will turn red, so that when you have just a germinating plant, then it will also be you know, changing colour. And imagine how elite... A cigarette rolled from tobacco from a minefield <laughs> has got to be. Um, well, I don't know about that. But, um, but I mean, landmines, they're pretty dangerous. There are still landmines, I think, in like 78 countries all over Afghanistan and Asia and parts of Africa. So, yeah, I think it's good that they're finding other uses for genetically modified plants. Yes. Let's spray all those places with tobacco. <laughs> Oh, Ian, you're such an optimist. Uh, so another story this week is about the tree man. Now, have you heard of the tree man? Is this the guy who had some weird freaky growth on his skin that made him look like he had bark? Yes, that's exactly right. So it's warts from the HPV virus, the human 
papillomavirus, virus, which is also the same one that causes cervical cancer and that sort of thing. They're similar strains, but not all of them are wart-causing. And he also had a an immune deficiency. So this in combination meant that he couldn't fight off the warts and it just grew like all over his skin and basically he was the only job that he could get is in a travelling freak show. So so and he looked he looked like he was actually had bark growing on his on his skin. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend going to the internet and doing a Google search because it's incredible. And then uh, what happened was a um, US dermatologist over at the University of Maryland saw it and actually diagnosed it. So and then treated it. And now the tree man has had his six kilograms of warts cut off and has returned home safely. Wow. So he has one more, I believe, one more uh, operation to go to remove the final 300 grams of growths. And he'll just be on, you know, immune-boosting drugs to make sure they don't come back. Well, that's a wonderful success story for the power of the media and science. Yes, it is, actually. Because this medicine got to go into a remote Indonesian village and treat this guy. So, well done to uh, everyone who participates in the internet. And there was another interesting story, a piece of science that came from the internet, this time from Google Earth. Uh, what scientists have done is look at how cows align while they're grazing using Google Earth images. And you will not believe this one, but apparently cows, when they're grazing, align themselves facing north. Now, whose job was it to look at this? <laughs> I don't know, but probably some undergraduate, I'm guessing. <laughs> Do you think it was an accidental sort of thing that someone was just looking at lots of, just sort of having fun looking at Google Earth pictures and seeing all the cows and going, Hold on a minute. They're all facing the same way. Well, actually, it's. I reckon it was quite a bit more analysis in it because farmers already knew that cows actually stand perpendicular to the sun when it's cold, so they heat up, and then when it's really, really windy, they stand so that like the wind, you know, gushes around them and doesn't like blow into them and make them cold again. So. I mean, it does change depending on weather patterns. So what they had to do was go and get the images of the days when there was fine weather and see how the cows were aligning. So somebody so, had to have a clue already that there was... That there might have been something going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested to know the backstory, like how they, what the inspiration was, because I would not have expected that cows had a built-in compass. Well, exactly, right? I want to know how the hell cows are figuring out which way the magnetic field is pointing. And Why? Well, because birds and turtles and fish are all well have have compasses built in. That's well known. That's how they navigate around. But cows? Ah, oh, but hold on. Wild cows, like you know, bison and um, wild cattle types of, of, of that, that you know when they were wild mm-hmm. cattle, they did migrate ah. in giant herds. So maybe in order for them to migrate successfully over the seasons, they had to have some sort of compass. Yeah, that's... Hey, speculate away. It could possibly be the reason. So that that study actually came from the Czech Republic. I was going to say it involved 8,500 cows, uh, so I'm guessing that's actually pretty reliable. It's a very large that's sample number. That's a large number. Sam- sample number. So if you're going camping, you're going to have a compass and lunch. Oh. Ian, that's despicable. Let's not eat the cows. They're cute. Uh, okay, I meant the, milk. 
<laughs> sure you did. Um, and the last news story this week is about uh, using magicians to basically help us figure out neuroscience. Now, you know quite a bit about this, don't you, And I've seen you pulling some magic tricks before. Yeah, cognitive psychology and magic should have been friends a long time ago because magicians, as they say in the study, have been doing this for thousands of years and they've got pretty sophisticated techniques at finding all the gaps in the way we perceive the world. What do you mean, the gaps? Well, well the cognitive psychologists have found that we don't see the world as continuously as we think. You know, we sort of have this cartoon image of the world that our brain has generated from the brief glances around the room that our eyes have made, but we don't actually see the whole room at once, as, but we perceive that we do. So a magician can distract you or misdirect you and pop something in that you don't see, but you think you're, you're looking all the time when you're not. Aha. Uh-huh. So that's how they got that penny from behind my ear that time. Um <laughs> Yeah, so there was a conference over in Las Vegas, Nevada, where called the Magic of Consciousness. And basically, they were looking at a few things, like the fact that people are more likely to look at hand motions if they're circular hand motions, and less likely to look at them if they're direct hand motions. So um, basically, like, wave one hand in a big circle and then do something with the other hand and people won't notice. Um, and also, the use of humour to distract people. So apparently people are less perceptive when they're laughing. So tell a wise joke, move one hand in a circle and then do whatever you need to do with the other hand and you're right. Because people are not multitasking as well as they think they are. Yes, exactly. Unless they're women, in which case they are, Ian. Unless you laugh and move your hands (laughs) in a circular motion. (laughs) Exactly. Now I'm really excited about this. Somebody has gone off and done the ultimate study that We've all debated across the years, but according to ABC Science Online, they've done a study at the University of Leuven in Belgium on the effects of different triggers and different sexy, racy kind of triggers on men. Now, they've done this. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Tilly's sitting here going, yeah, we know where this is going. (laughs) Where on earth do they get the volunteers? Oh, who knows? Well... Just on the, the volunteers, I passed the article across the table here and it's got a picture of a nice-looking young lady in a bikini. And what, what was your reaction to this, Adam? I believe it was something to the effect of, ooh, picture. <laughs> <laughs> now, they've gone off and they've, they've done this study by using a different gambling game. And they've looked at two different types of men, so men with high testosterone levels and men with low testosterone levels. And they're sitting there playing this bargaining game and then they've shown different pictures, so sexy pictures or lingerie, to the men playing the game and see how this affects their rate of bargaining. And what they've found is that men with high testosterone levels are likely to sit there and drive a harder bargain, but when shown these different triggers, so shown a picture or given lingerie, (laughs) their rate of bargaining slows down. So So them seeing a picture of a scantily clad woman or holding a brassiere actually stops them bargaining harder for, for monetary gain. Almost it, as if they're distracted. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Pretty girls distract men. Wow, that is, that, there's a headline for you. <laughs> so it's just confirmed everything across, everything that you might have heard. So what happened with the men with low testosterone? I don't think it really did much at all, not in comparison to the men with high testosterone. 
But they've measured the levels of testosterone in the men. This is what I found kind of interesting. They've measured the levels of testosterone in the men by... Well, they develop different levels of testosterone in the womb, and this can be measured by looking at the length of their ring finger. <laughs> I so, always thought that that was... Is that actually true? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> is what actually true, Tilly? <laughs> <laughs> that you can measure testosterone by the length of the finger. Well, apparently, I was reading that and I thought, oh, that was a joke in high school, but hey. <laughs> Which is going to become very, any girls that are listening out there, this could become very handy if you're ever playing a game of poker. Um, it's actually more handy than that because it's supposed to, bal- the amount of testosterone, not only is it supposed to determine how long your fingers are and what proportion, mm-hmm. but by looking at that, you, you might be able to tell whether someone's more of a gentle or a more aggressive type. And really? Your type in the bar. How? Yeah. Tell us. Tell us. You're looking at the length of their fingers, yeah. whether they're even or whether the ring finger is longer. Or so, so ring finger longer means that they're more aggressive? That's, yes. That's longer than the index finger. Longer than the index, index finger. finger. Right. Ah, interesting. Wow. You learn something I knew new. I <laughs> Absolutely. You learn something new every day. <laughs> I also saw a study that showed that when men were looking at sexual imagery or violent imagery, that their minds went blank suddenly. So they'd You'd be driving along on a road, you'd see a billboard with a pretty girl, and you want to go blank and crash. Yep, been there. <laughs> For all our pregnant listeners who feel they can't stand to be pregnant, it turns out you've evolved to be able to stand while you're pregnant. Really? Women have different back bones, different vertebra to men. Hmm. And what does the what does it do? So they can So they can be balance so they can balance while they're standing up. So they have wedge-shaped vertebra in the lower back and the interlocking bony projections that align each vertebra with its neighbours are larger than they are in men. And it's been that way for about two to three million years and we've only just noticed. (laughs) We've only just noticed 2007. We've known anatomy for quite a while. That's a bit surprising. But we didn't notice that women have different backbones to men. So, okay, so when you see a lot of pregnant women, they're often holding onto their lower back and leaning backwards. And men can't do the same. So men don't have the flexibility to do that? Is that the idea? Exactly. Ah, so if you're pregnant, you get very, very heavy in the front. Yes. Is that right? And if you can't do this, you fall over? Exactly. You just fall (laughs) over, which was not a good look. I mean, (laughs) imagine, well, you can see this in action with men with beer bellies. When they get big, a lot of beer, what happens? They fall flat on their face. So, poor men out there, they have probably have bellies just as big as women, but they can't do this bending back and putting pressure on the lower spine. That's right, they're just not, they haven't evolved for it. You said we've had this for two or three million years, is that right? Yes. What about other um, primates? Did well, that's how they know it's been that long. Uh, oh, right. Aust- they found an Australopithecine fossil from two to three million years ago. Australopithecine woman who has the same wedge-shaped vertebra and large interlocking bones in the spine. So she would have carried her baby the same way, leaning back. And if her mate tried to hold the baby, he might have fallen on his face. <laughs> so when women complain about back pain, is that is that related to this? or I don't know. I think it's still a lot of weight to carry for a lot of time, and it's really uncomfortable. So they think that uh, our australopithecine ancestors may have been just as uncomfortable in pregnancy, well, as women are. As women are, right. 
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Technology keeps getting better, smarter and faster. Can you imagine technology so advanced that robots could become... companions? Jackie Pfeffer can. She spoke with Professor Hugh Durrant-White about sex and robots. This story is rated R for robots. Isaac Asimov created the three laws of robotics. Fritz Lang's film Metropolis predicted a world run by robots. And the old TV show Inspector Gadget meshed man with metal to make a part robotic human. There's always been pretty futuristic ideas about the place of robots in society, but would you believe the idea that one day we could be able to have sex with a robot? David Levy from the Netherlands University has just completed his PhD on human-robot relationships. Levy believes that with the advances in robotics, by the year 2050, robots could be so lifelike that we may be able to have sex with them, and one day... Marriages between humans and robots may even be legalised. Now just stop and think. Would you have sex with a robot? What if you could program it to have all the things you've ever wanted in a partner? Would it be able to act like another human being? And would marrying a robot bring emotional satisfaction? You look really pretty in that dress. Have I told you how beautiful you are? Hugh Durrant-White is a professor of robotics at the University of Sydney. Hugh, how hard is it to program movement into a robot? I think movements very easy to program because uh, we're good at building um, you know motors and even artificial muscles and things like that I think the hard bit in robotics is actually the other one which is sensing Um, so actually responding to what's in the environment that's very tricky for a robot so you know visual stimulus uh, tactile stimulus things like that that's that's quite a tricky problem so is it possible that say by 2050 we could have robots which function and move and react to people like a normal human being would? Yeah, I think that's, that's reasonable. 2050, I'm pleased you said that, and not 2010. <laughs> um, uh, there's certainly a lot of work going on now in what's called um, you know, android robotics, for want of a better word, where um, as opposed to the sort of robots you see in a, in a factory, um, people are building robots that look like people that have skin, uh, that have the sort of... Um, motions in, uh, for example, something like the face, the complexity of the face muscles that we have, um, and that uh, to all intents and purposes look human and do indeed have some robotics in them. The problem really is they get so much information from the visual sense, uh, from the tactile sense, uh, not just hands but skin and everything else and auditory sensing and so on, that that's very hard to interpret in terms of a meaningful thing that's going on in the world. So you want a robot to respond to what it touches and sees and so on. And that's very tricky because if you just look around you now, there are so many colours and textures and shapes and shades and all these sorts of things. How do you really explain to a robot, for example, what a lemon is? Taking that into account and all the difficulties you face there, is it plausible that you could program thoughts into a robot as well? Uh, Thoughts is a different kind of thing but but maybe let me just, let me just amplify some of one of the things i said there so there's, there's certainly this very well-known guy called ishiguro in japan who has made robots that look like his child and also another one that makes that looks like his wife and um you know he can uh you know um 
uh, you know, push his wife and she'll respond very much like his own wife, if you see what I mean. So you can kind of do that uh, sort of thing. But whether you can really make it like in general is, is a lot harder. Now, you, you mentioned the word thought now, and I'll bring that in. When we think about in our head, one of our biggest problems is, is what's called, you know, perception, which is not just taking in all the sensor information, but coming up with a model in our brain about what's actually out there. Uh, and once we've got that model to then say, okay, if I do this and then if I do that, this will be the consequence uh, on the outside world. Do you see what I mean? And that really is um, no one really even knows what the right question, the research questions are in that at all uh, yet. So we're a long way from that final sort of process where you can create thought. But I'll add one more comment to that is that there was a very famous guy, Patrick Winston, who used to head the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And he used to say, well, uh, whatever we don't know how to solve is called artificial intelligence. But when we know how to solve it, it's called an algorithm. That means we know it. We, we then it becomes an engineering problem. So I suspect thought and intelligence and all these things, in the end, we'll only understand once we've done it. And finally, Jackie spoke with psychologist Jeroen Descartes about the psychological consequences of having relations with robots. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband until you both shall live or malfunction? I do. If man did marry a robot, who would be the best man and would they have any family to bring to the ceremony? If you've just tuned in, we're talking about relationships and robots. David Levy from the Netherlands University believes that by 2050, marrying a robot may be legalised and that we may even be able to have sex with them. We've heard about programming thought and movements into robots, but what about the psychological side of sparking up something special with an android? Jeron Descartes is a psychologist. Now, Jeron, do you think a robot can fulfil the emotional needs that we look for in a relationship? Oh, that's one of those questions, because it, of course, depends on what we are looking for in relationships. I suppose that um, many people will look for fulfillment of emotional needs in their pets, in their dogs, for instance. And I think that a lot of people would agree that a pet can fulfill those needs, whereas other people say, no, it will, it will never be. So it's in a way, it's in the eye of the beholder. Hey there, good looking. Now, if you could program your ideal man in a robot, do you think you'd know what you were looking for? Well, clearly you'd, uh, you'd want one that, that would clean. Say we're giving this, given this right to program what you want in a partner into a robot. Do you think that as relationship seekers, humans actually know what they want in a partner and we'd get it right when we programmed a robot? I think if we could program a partner uh, as in a robot being programmed for us, I think part of the attraction of having a partner is that you cannot exactly program the partner to do exactly what you want to do. It's, it's one of those tensions that makes uh, life dynamic. So no, I don't think that a robot will be satisfactory in that in the end. And if we were to start sleeping with robots, what impact do you think that this would have on society? Look, basically what you're talking about here is virtual sex. And of course, that has been happening for a long time already. You know, we have had telephone sex, we've had chat lines, we've had virtual sex in the virtual worlds like uh, Second Life. I suppose this is more an extension of that. It just makes it more real and more three-dimensional. If this is really to occur, and how do we know? And I'm not going to say that it is or it isn't possible. I have no idea. 
It will bring its own set of difficulties, of course. Uh, what if the robot gets preferred over the real-life partner? And what if the robot is better at certain things than the real-life partner? I, I am not sure that this is going to be a solution. I think it is one of those 50-50 issues where it will bring as many problems solved as problems created. That was Jackie Pfeffer talking with Jeron Descartes about robot relationships. And now an announcement from Prime Minister Scott Morrison, thanks to Hugh Parkinson. Uh, We're here today to announce that we're announcing here today the announcement that we're announcing all of the announced measures of this announcement on the basis of the announcement we have made today. And at this stage, having just announced it, um, we'll be announcing further measures on uh, these matters uh, once they're finalised. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Contributing to the program were Jackie Hayes, Jackie Pfeffer, Tilly Berlin, and Adam Richardson. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania. And 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.